this next season in my life as a pastor and in our life as a church is going to be marked as a season where we learn and yearn together to depend more desperately on the Lord than we ever have. Because our God is a great God. Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm going to start us out in prayer, okay? Heavenly Father, we've come into your presence today with singing. We enter into your gates with thanksgiving, and we come into your courts with praise. Father God, we need you so much. Father God, we devote our, our lives to you. We devote our families to you. We devote our businesses to you. We devote our relationships to you. We devote our friendships to you. Lord, we devote our fellowship to you. Lord, may we devote everything that we have to you. Lord, we must decrease, but you must increase. Father God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in the hearts of the people today. Lord, give us minds that understand and eyes that see and ears that hear. And Lord, may your desires be the desires inside my heart. May your thoughts be the thoughts that are in my mind, and may your words be the words that come out of my mouth today. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to rightly divide the word of truth, and I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for everybody, I'm Rob. I'm the one that Barrett introduced, and uh, I'm not a pastor here, but I am a ministry leader for a Celebrate Recovery ministry. It meets every Friday night, and if any of you in here are dealing with a hurt, uh, or maybe an addiction, or maybe something that's happened in your past, or maybe you have a fear about something that's going to happen to you in the future. I want to just encourage you that you can come and worship with us on Friday night. It's a great opportunity. To, it's a great way to spend a Friday night. I think it's the best way. Um, I'm here every Friday night unless I was on vacation like I was the last week, and I co-lead with uh, Laura Netton, and we would love to have you come. Um, we are in a series called Desperate Dependence, and it's on praying. That's what it's been about. And uh, in the middle of the series today, I'm going to be talking about praying and fasting. And if you, have your, if you have your Desperate Dependence Guide, it's on page 83. You can turn to that to take notes. If you don't have one of these guides, uh, I checked today, and there's some that are still available. And since we're in this series, I'd encourage you to get one. It's a great way to take notes. Uh, the, the recommended donation for it is $5 just to cover the cost of printing, but if you, don't, if you don't have that, we can help you with that. I encourage you to get one of these guides. Um, so we're talking about praying and fasting today, and I heard a story, this is a true story, about a town in Texas, and it seems that there was a bar owner, and he decided he wanted to increase his business, so he wanted to expand his bar. So he, 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 he shut the bar down, and he was expanding it. And there was a little Baptist church in this town. It's a true story. And the Baptist church members didn't like the fact that this, there was going to be a bigger bar in their town. So they started circulating a petition. And some of them got together, and they started fasting and praying. And it just so happens that one week before the bar was, the new and expanded bar was supposed to open back up, that lightning struck and it burned to the ground. So the, the members of the church were, you know, they were satisfied with the, the results. And they, 
they were a little bit glib in the way that they were talking about it too in the community until they got a lawsuit filed against the church. And in the complaint, the bar owner alleged that the church was responsible for the destruction of the bar either by direct or indirect means. So in their reply brief, the church denied all responsibility for the destruction of the bar. So the case went before the judge, and the judge said, I don't know how I'm going to decide this case. It appears to me that we have a bar owner who truly believes in the power of fasting and prayer. On the other hand, it appears that we have a church that's full of members that does not believe in the power of fasting and prayer. So that was the dilemma that the judge had. It's a true story. When I took, agreed to take this message, I didn't realize it was going to be on fasting and prayer. I did not know. I just thought, well, it's about Esther. And Barrett wasn't supposed to be here on the day that I was going to do this. <laughs> and things got switched around. So I had to do a, I fasted before, but I had to do a crash course on prayer and fasting. I, I'm not trained in the Bible. I didn't go to seminary school. Um, but I want to share with you the core truth that God has taught me in fasting and prayer. And uh, so the core truth for today is that there are some circumstances that you're going to face in your life that we're all going to face. And the only way that you're going to understand your situation and the only way that you're going to see God's favor is if you pray and fast. That sounds like a bold statement, but I think that that's what God showed me. And I'm going to show you in the Bible, this is not just me saying this, and I encourage you to write this down. The only way sometimes that you're going to see God move in your life, the only way that you're going to have understanding of your circumstances sometimes is if you combine prayer with fasting. Um, what is fasting? Fasting basically is not eating and not drinking, okay? Uh, and in the Bible, there, uh, there's just many times, many instances of fasting and prayer, and I compiled a list, and this is only a partial list, and I don't have time to go through all of these. You can write some of these down. Moses, when he was writing down the Ten Commandments, after he broke the first tablets, he was writing the second ones, he fasted and he prayed for 40, day, he, he, for 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat or drink anything. We know Jesus fasted. Yom Kippur in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement. On that holy day during Rosh Hashanah, it was the holiest day for the Israelites, and they didn't eat or drink that day. Okay, In the book of Daniel, chapter 10. Now, Daniel, this is an interesting thing. He didn't abstain from all food and drink. The Bible says he ate no pleasant bread. How many of you like strawberry cake like me? I like strawberry cake. It said he ate no meat. Have we got any meat eaters in here? Okay. Well, I thought I was, I was just checking to make sure I was in the right place. So I like, we like barbecue. But it says that he ate no pleasant bread. What is that? He ate no food that was really desirable. He probably ate vegetables. Back in chapter, to me, that's, that's not desirable, you know. It's like he ate vegetables. In chapter 1 of Daniel, he ate vegetables and he drank water. That's probably what he did. And he did it for three weeks. He did it for three weeks. Now, 
you say, well, Rob, is, you know, that's Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, yeah, Jesus fasted for 40 days. He didn't eat anything. And the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, he's a single guy like me, and so was Jesus. But, but Paul said, I was often in fastings. I was often in fastings. And in, 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 in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or 7, verse 5, for you married couples, you might want to note that, he's saying if you're married, there's a time when as a married couple, you need to fast with your partner, with the person that you're married to. Yeah. So yeah, it is. It, it is in the New Testament. And look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Jesus says, when you fast. He doesn't say if you fast or perhaps you'll fast. He says, Jesus says, when you fast. So Jesus is saying, if you're calling on my name, if I live in your heart, if you believe in me, that there are going to come times when you're going to be fasting. And he goes on in these verses and he tells us how to fast. And he's saying, you know, you've got to do it in secret. Don't be hypocritical and, you know, tell everybody that you're hungry and, oh, woe is me, like the Pharisees do. No, he's saying you've got to come before the Lord when you do this. And what does he say is the result of doing it in the right way? Well, at the end, he says, your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. There's a reward for this. There's favor from the Lord for doing this. There's answers to prayer from doing this. And I'm telling you that, there's, there, that what I have learned, there, is, there are some circumstances that you will face and that I will face, and the only way that you're going to see God move in your life is if you pray and fast. Now, you may say, well, Rob, I thought God's love was unconditional, and it is. God loves you 24-7. He loves you whether you love him or not, and uh, his love, it, you don't deserve it, and you can't earn it, and God is love, and he loves you. But there's a difference between the love of God and the favor of God. And we're talking about receiving favor from the Lord. Did you know in order to be saved, to receive salvation, you know, we've been taught, and it's true, that you can't earn salvation. But did you know that God gives grace? We're saved by grace, right? But you know who God gives grace to? He doesn't give it to everybody. He gives it to the humble. You have to be humble to receive salvation because you have to surrender and make Jesus the Lord of your life. Isn't that not correct? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you make somebody Lord, it means that you're not doing what you want to do. You're surrendering to Jesus as your Lord. And I think in a crowd this large, there's probably some people in here, and you've never done that. And I'm here to tell you today that you're going to have an opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life, and I hope when the time comes that you will do that. So there is a reward for fasting and prayer. And I want you to look at... Romans chapter 1, uh, I, it's going to be on the screen here. Romans chapter one, 12, excuse me, Romans 12 verse 1, and it says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable as your spiritual worship, okay? How can you present your bodies as a living sacrifice? Well, the way that you can, one way you can do it is fasting and through prayer. Our bodies are not our own. Our bodies are the temple of God. And God says that if you want to increase in my favor, 
that if you will subject yourself and you will fast, fasting is an, another way of disconnecting from the world, okay? Praying is a way of connecting to God. And if you do these things in combination, sometimes that is the only way that you're going to get understanding. It's the only way you're going to get an answer to prayer, and we're going to see that. Our message today is in Esther, chapter 1. You've got First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, so hopefully you can find it with that in your Bibles. And um, there's some background to the, why the Jews are here. This is, this is a story that occurred in Shushan in Persia. And I think it's helpful for me to give you a little background before we get into it. We're going to get into Esther in just a moment. But the Old Testament has 39 books in it. And the Old Testament is all about God's plan for the first coming of Jesus. That's what it's about. It's about the Israelites and it's about uh, Israel, it's about Jerusalem, and it's about the first coming of Jesus. That's God's plan. The New Testament is about the second coming of Jesus, about the life of Jesus and the second coming. And we're living in that period now where we're in between the Bible prophecy and we're waiting on the second coming. He's not come yet. But that's God's overall plan, okay? So the, the Bible is about the Jewish people, and at this point they're in Persia. Well, why aren't they in Israel? We need to understand that. So we know that God selected the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be the channel through which the Christ would come. Okay, we know that. And he gave them Israel. He gave them the promised land. But they engaged in sensuality. They engaged in idolatry. And they were rebellious. And they were so rebellious that God allowed the Babylonians to come and conquer their country. Jeremiah, the prophet, told them, said, it's coming. And, and God's judgment came. And so the Babylonians took over, and also, as Jeremiah prophesied, the Babylonians were in control for 70 years. And then after that time, the Persians came, and they conquered the Babylonians. And also, as, as prophesied by Jeremiah, a friend in the Persian, a, a king from Persia, befriended the Jews, and he allowed them to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. And the king's name was Cyrus. Okay? Now, you'd think after 70 years of captivity that everybody would be rushing out the door to uh, go back to their homeland, but that wasn't the case. There were a few that did, but most stayed in Persia. And that's where this story in Esther occurs. And that's why the Jewish people are here. Okay? So let's look at Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Esther chapter 1, and it says, it says, Now it came to pass, when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a, a feast for all his officials and servants and powers of Persia and Media and the nobles and the princes and the provinces before him. So we've got this king, and he's throwing a big party, and it doesn't mention the Jews yet, but they're there. And as we read chapter 1, what we learn is that there was a lot of alcohol that flowed in this party. And the king said, everybody drink up, drink as much as you want. So all the servants and all the, everybody got to drink and everybody got drunk, basically. And it turned into a, basically a bunch of a drunken men at a party, okay? This big party, probably a lot more people that are in this room. And then the king said, well, you know, I have a beautiful wife. And, I'm gonna, and her name is Queen Vashti, and I want her to come and entertain all of us with her beauty. <laughs> well, when Vashti heard that, she said, I ain't having that. 
she wisely, she wisely declined to go to the king's party. Well, when she declined an order from the king, the king was enraged and he was humiliated because he told everybody that she was coming. And so he just, he just announced, well, that, you know, you're not the queen anymore. You're deposed. And so Vashti was history. So we get over into um, chapter 2, and, and the king says, well, I don't have a queen anymore. He says, so I'm going to open up the job. And so he sends out a summons, and he basically lets, he says, all the young and pretty virgins in the, my whole kingdom can apply for queen, so to speak. That's basically what he did. And uh, it just so happens that there was a young Jewish woman. She was an orphan, and she was there. Her name was Esther, and her co- she was there with her cousin Mordecai. She was an orphan, and her cousin Mordecai was raising her. And let's read about, let's read about them uh, in chapter 2 and verses, uh, we want, I think it's 5 through 6 here. Yeah, 5 through 7. So after Fashuerus disposed the beautiful uh, he, he disposed her for her, oh, excuse me. In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. And Mordecai brought up Hadasha, that is Esther, and his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. And the young woman was lovely and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai had, took her as his own daughter. So, they advertise, so the king advertises for you know, all of these women to come, probably hundreds of thousands. And as unlikely as it seems... The king chose this Jewish woman to be his queen out of all of these women, okay? And look at verse 17, what it says. It says, The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. So he set the crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, you know, you may be thinking, well, you know, can God use all of these circumstances for his plan? Was it God's will for those men to get drunk? No. You know, but God can take circumstances that are, uh, you know, not that he didn't really ordain, but he can use them in his plan. And it was his plan to make this Jewish woman the queen. Okay, so he's taking that. What is his ultimate plan in the Old Testament? The first coming of Jesus. Okay. And he's got a plan for Esther. And, you know, these aren't just circumstances. Esther's the only book in the Bible where the name of God's not mentioned. But when you look at this, at this book, you can see the hand of God in almost every chapter and every verse, okay? It's not coincidence. It's not happenstance. It's not luck that things are going the way they are. And I want to tell you, if you're here today, it's not luck that you're here. It's not happenstance that you're here. You, you may be here because it was your day off or somebody invited you or maybe you heard about it on the internet, but I'm here to tell you God's got a plan for your life and it involves you and it involves his church. It involves the second coming of Jesus where we are now and there's a reason that you're sitting in the seat that you're sitting in now. God's got a message for you today. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. So the plot thickens here in chapter 2, okay? I'm going to tell you about a couple of things I want you to keep on the back burner. Esther Never told, she got made queen, but she never told anybody she was a Jew. She never told anybody she was a Jewish person. And that doesn't seem important, but it will be later on. The reason she didn't do it is because her cousin Mordecai told her not to. And she was the queen, and she could have said, well, you know, I, I, I don't have to do that. But she, because he had raised her, she said, I'm going to submit myself to your authority. I will not tell anybody that I'm Jewish. And God honored that. He's going to honor that. We're going to see. 
Another thing that happens in the plot here is, is that at the end of chapter 2, while she's being made queen and all of this stuff is going on, there's an assassination plot against the king, Ahasuerus. And who finds out about the plot but Mordecai, Esther's cousin. He finds out about it, and he tells the, uh, Esther in the palace, he says, these people are going to kill the king. So they're able to stop the plot, and they hang those responsible. That's not important now, but it will be later on. So those are the two things that I want you to remember. Esther doesn't tell anybody that she's Jewish, and Mordecai stops an assassination plot against the king. So in chapter 3, we meet one of the most evil men in Scripture. Chapter 3, verse 1. This man is really bad news, and his name was Haman. His name was Haman. And what this says is that after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set him above all the princes who were with him. Now you may say, well, what is an Agagite? Well, just as the children of Israel were Israelites, the children of Agag were Agagites. Well, who was Agag? Well, we read about him in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 8 and 32. And you can write that down as a note. Agag was the king of a group of people called the Malachites. Roughly 500 years before the events in Esther took place, Israel was fighting these people, was fighting the Amalekites, and their king was Agag. And 500 years before they fought them in 1 Samuel 15, Moses encountered the Amalekites in the wilderness, and they were fighting them there. And these people were such an affront to God. Look what God said about the Amalekites in Exodus 17, verse 16. He says, So the Lord has sworn... The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I tell you what, when God makes an oath, I mean, he's not, he's not kidding. And a thousand years later, we're, a, we're now in Esther, a thousand years later, and the Amalekites, the descendants of the Amalekites are still, we're going to see, doing battle. They're trying to kill off the Israelites. Why are they doing that? Who's behind that? Satan's not mentioned in this passage, just like God's not mentioned. But Satan is using the Amalekites because if he can kill off the Israelites, maybe Jesus won't come. He knows they're God's chosen people. So that's what this is all about. And so we learn that in verse 2, look at, look at chapter 3, verse 2. All the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded him, but Mordecai would not pay homage. Uh-oh. You know, Mordecai saw right through Haman. He knew he was bad news. He knew that he didn't deserve such an honor, and he wasn't going to bow down. Well, when Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, he says, well, I'm not only going to kill Mordecai, I'm going to kill all the Jews. I'm going to exterminate them in the kingdom. But he has to come up with a reason to get the king to go along with him because he, he can't just issue the order. So he does this in verse 8 and 9. He sets this up. Look in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, there is a certain people scattered, king, and dispersed in the, uh, of, among the people of your provinces of your kingdom, and their laws are different from other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. Well, the king 
goes along with it. He's like, you're the prime minister. I'm going to go along with that. He issues the decree. Well, remember from chapter 2, Esther's told no one that she's a Jew. So in issuing the decree, the king has just issued the death warrant for his wife, and he doesn't know it. And Haman doesn't know that Esther's Jewish either, okay? But her death warrant and the, her death warrant for all her people, the king has just decreed this. So then we see, in, you know, after this that uh, Esther, uh, the, the king actually sits down with Haman. And, uh, you know, they're having a drink. And they're like, hey, everything's great. But the city was perplexed. The city was perplexed. There were a lot of Jewish people in this city, okay? And we get over into chapter 4, and in that chapter, uh, Mordecai is just, is just distraught. And he tears his clothes, and he puts on sackcloth, which is like a potato sack. He puts ashes all over him, and he goes into mourning. And he goes up to the, the king's gate, and he's crying out. And Esther's like, she finds out about this, and she says, uh, what is wrong with him? And she tries to send him some clothes, and he won't put them on, but he sends her a message. And he says, look, now's the time for you to go tell the king that you're Jewish. Now's the time to go beg for mercy, Esther. But she says, she sends a message back to him. She says, well, I can't really do that, cousin Mordecai, because... There's a law of the Mer Persians and the Medes, and in that law, it says that if you approach the king and you're not invited, it's a death sentence, whether you're a man or woman. It's automatic death, and that law can't be changed because the law of the Persian and Medes can't be changed. She said the only exception is, is if the king holds out the golden scepter to you and allows you to come in. She said, then I might get a reprieve. And so Haman comes back with some words which I think are probably one of the, they, they, they go down really as one of the most, uh, I guess, best examples of God's providence and his sovereign that we have in the Bible. Look what he tells Esther in his reply in verses 13 and 14. It says, And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape the king's palace any more than all the Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. You know? And then at the end of verse 14, he says, Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Wow. What a moment. You know? It's the, the Jewish race is facing annihilation. And a higher power has put Esther at the throne. And, and Mordecai knew that it wasn't by chance that she was there, you know. And he's giving her an instruction through Mordecai. He's saying, go tell the king. You know, God gives us instructions through people sometimes. And, you know, for some of you, you know, maybe God's told you to do something that you don't want to do. Maybe he's told you, you know, I want you to go to the mission field. Or I want you to sign up for Tanzania today. Or maybe he's told you, I want you to live in Memphis. I don't want you to move to California. You know? Or maybe he's told you to speak to somebody on the street who needs help. Maybe he's, maybe he's told you to do something, and you think, gee, that's impossible, or that's really hard. 
And Mordecai tells Esther, he says, you know, if you refuse, God's not going to make you do his plan. And you can refuse to do it, but if you do, help's going to come from somewhere else, you know. And folks, we have to decide that we want to be a part of God's plan for our lives. Sometimes we have to make that decision. And it takes courage, and it takes surrender. We have to surrender to that. Look at what Esther's response is. I think that it, 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 she did have courage, and she did have surrender here. She said, then Esther told him to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast with me. Neither eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will likewise fast. Now you're talking about a woman who's the most beautiful woman, according to the king. He could have had anybody he wanted. The most beautiful woman in the whole kingdom. And she says, I'm not going to rely on my beauty. I'm not going to rely on my past favor. Yeah, that got me in, but I'm going to fast. And not only am I going to fast and seek God, but I'm going, I want you to fast with me, brother. Cousin, I want you to call a fast to all the Jews in the whole city, and we're going to fast, and we're going to separate ourselves, and I'm not going to eat or drink anything, and I don't want you to do that, and we're going to seek the Lord. And, you know, and then, and then look what she says at the end of verse 16. She says, and so... She says, after the fast, so I will go to the king. It's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You know, sometimes it comes to that, men and women. Sometimes, if you want to follow God, you've got to unfollow everything else. You know? And it's here, it's if she is saying, God, here is my struggle. Here is my crisis. Here is my problem. Here is my work. Here's my opportunity. Here's my dream. And Lord, I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to do what you ask. But first, I'm going to fast and pray. I'm going to make sure my heart's right before you. I'm going to submit myself a holy sacrifice. I'm going to do worship. I'm going to make sure that I'm right. And then, God, I'm going to hand it over to you, and if I perish, I perish. She's desperately depending on God. She's longing for his power. She's abiding in his presence. She's depending on his promises, because if God doesn't act on her behalf, not only is she going to die, her whole people, her whole race could be wiped out. This is desperate dependence. This is what it means to be desperately dependent on God here. Now, I want to switch gears for just a minute, and we're going to look in the book of Matthew about an incident that happened with Jesus and his disciples. And in Matthew chapter 17, and this verse, this, this, this account is also in Mark chapter 9. Um, the scripture says, a man came to him, and it's talking about Jesus. It says, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on me. On my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers severely, for he falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? Who was Jesus talking about? Who was he saying was faithless and perverse? Was it the man with the epileptic son? No. 
He was talking about his disciples. He was talking about the ones who said they believed in him. And he says, you're faithless and you're perverse. Okay? Well, what does it mean to be faithless? Faithless means that you, it's your, your unbelief. You're in unbelief, you doubt. How do you get that way? Well, how much of the time do you spend praying, disciples? Did you just go in there and think that you were going to cast that devil out? Did you pray before you go? Were you connected to me? Have you been disconnected from going to the synagogue? Are you going to church? Are you disconnected from that? Are you here today just because it's, you know, it's something you do once a month? Are you disconnected from small groups? Are you disconnected from being around other Christian people? You know, because when you get disconnected from God and when you don't search for him with all your heart, you know, you get into disbelief. You get into faithlessness. And when you don't have faith and when you're not praying to God in confidence and when you're not relying on him to seek to help you, what sets in? Fear. Anxiety. You get hopeless. You get in despair. Yeah. That's what's going to take over. When you don't have faith in God, there's no hope. There's no hope. There's despair. Okay? So he, said, he tells him, he says, well, you're faithless. You've not been seeking me like you should. But they were also perverse. What's perverse mean? Well, the root word of that is perverted. What does it mean to be perverted? You're connected to the world. You have a love of money more than me. You can't serve money in me. You have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. You have the pride of life. You're going back to things I set you free from. I set you free from that addiction. I set you free from that fear. But you're going back to it. You love the world more than me. You're more connected to the world than you are to me, so you're perverse. You've not been reaching out to me, so you're faithless. And his disciples say, well, Lord, why couldn't we cast him out? Jesus attributes this epilepsy that this man had to demonic forces. And folks, we need to understand that some of the, con the conditions that we face, it's supernatural. It's not always so, but here it was. Here it was. It was clearly supernatural what was going on. And they said, why can't, we, man, why can't we heal this guy? Why can't we cast the devil out? Well, Jesus tells them the solution to their problem. Look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. Jesus said, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Jesus said, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Well, what is prayer? Well, we've had this whole sermon series on prayer. Prayer is being connected to God, right? It's, it's, it's abiding in God's presence, okay? It's longing for God's power. It's depending on his promises. It's praying in confidence. It's praying the word of God, okay? Why do we pray the word of God? Because we know that the word of God, when we pray that and that comes out of our mouth, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. We can believe. When we pray the word, we can feel like God feels because we're, we're praying what God says, okay? So Jesus said, if you pray, 
You're going to overcome because you're going to be connecting back to God. But then look at what else he says. He says you've got to fast with that. Well, what is fasting? Well, I've, I've told you that it's, it's not eating and drinking, and that's basically what it is, but it's disconnecting from the world. I don't live by bread alone, Jesus told the devil. He said, I live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm denying myself food. I'm presenting my body a living sacrifice. My body's not my own. As an act of worship, I'm disconnecting from the world. Now, it doesn't mean that you skip a meal and then you go cut on the TV and see how you're doing in the brackets for the NCAA, guys. That's not what fasting is. And for you ladies, it doesn't mean that you skip a meal and you cut on the Great British Baking Show. <laughs> Does anybody, any women watch that? I know you do, Michelle, because Barrett told me. And I... <laughs> And, I, and I'll admit that I've watched, that sh I've watched parts of that show, too. I've never watched the whole thing. I'm a cook. That's how, that's how, that's how, that was the job that I had after I got out of school. So I'm interested in cooking. I've never watched the whole show. <laughs> I promise. Um, but, you know, that's not what fasting is. It's disconnecting from the world, though. Okay? It's saying, I'm not going to get on social media. I'm not going to get on the Internet. I'm not going to watch TV. And while I am skipping a meal and while I am not drinking anything, I'm going to pray. I'm going to read the Word of God. I'm going to seek after God. Now, I would tell you that if, if you're, you have a medical condition and maybe you take medication and maybe you're on a special diet, that before you do this, I think a wise thing to do would be for you to consult with your doctor. I used to be on Coumadin. And the first time that I fasted, uh, I actually, you know, had the, my hematologist sit me down and they said, okay, well, when you do this, you know, you need to do this, this, and this, okay? And it may be that you, you have to do a fast where maybe you don't abstain from all food and drink, but maybe you're like Daniel and you don't eat anything that's really pleasant. You know, you just eat... I don't know, maybe a bag of salad with no dressing on it or something. I mean, I think that's what he did. I think that's what he, and I think he had water. And if you go back, and you need to go back and read Daniel chapter 10. That's really, I don't have time to cover that. It's really amazing what happened that, there. But if you want to know what an acceptable fast is to the Lord, also write down Isaiah 58. I don't have time to go into what that is. But if you want to know what an acceptable fast is to the Lord, you go back and you read Isaiah 58. It's not just about skipping a meal. Let me tell you something. You know, if you're not moved by this, if you're not in mourning, if you're not searching after God like Esther was, if it doesn't move you, it's not going to move God, okay? If you're not moved by it, it's not going to move God. You're just wasting your time. But I'm telling you that Jesus said, we just read it here, Jesus said, this kind does not come out but through prayer and fasting. And there's some circumstances in your life and some circumstances in my life, and we're not going to get an answer, and we're not going to get God's favor, and we're not going to get a resolution, and we're not going to get a reward, like Jesus said, unless we pray and we fast. And if you are a Christian and you are a person and you, have, you, you claim Christ, you will pray and you will fast. And you say, Rob, do I have to do it to be saved? No. You don't have to do it to be saved. You're not saved through that. You're not going to be saved anymore if, whether you do it or not, okay? God is offering us a challenge. He's offering us an opportunity to partner with him in this way. And what I'm telling you is, is that there are supernatural things that are going on. 
And sometimes we don't know what the answer is, and we'll never know. Daniel was praying for understanding in Daniel chapter 10. And when he started to fast, and when he continued to fast, the answer came. And there's power in this, okay? Let's see how this worked out in the life of Esther. Okay, so we get over into, uh, we get over into chapter 5, and uh, in that chapter, um, Esther actually gets into the throne room, and she survives. The king allows her to come in. And I actually have a Bible story book when I was a kid. It was called Beautiful Bible Stories, and my mom and my dad read those stories to us over and over again. And there was a picture in there of the king, and he extended the scepter to Esther. I remember it just like it was yesterday. And she comes up and she touches it and she's bowing down, looking away. And uh, my dad's in the audience today. And I know that he read that to me more than once. And dad, I love you. Thank you for, for that. Uh, so Esther gets into the throne room and she survives. And the king's like, what do you want? And he says, and she says, well, I just want you to come to a banquet. She said, I want you to bring Haman with you. So when Haman hears that he's been invited to a banquet and only the king and queen are going to be there, his pride swells up and he, his head's so big he, his cap won't fit on. And let's, let's read what happens to him starting in verse 9, chapter 5. So Haman went out that day joyful and glad, with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and he went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Haman had a wife named Zeresh. Okay. And it says, and then Haman told them of his great riches and the multitude of his children and everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. And moreover, Haman said, and here he's kind of like, his voice gets a little quieter, and he, he puts more emphasis on this. He's real proud of this, what he's getting ready to say. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I'm again invited by her along with the king. Yet, all this avails me nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all of her friends said, let gallows be made 50 cubits high. In the morning, suggested the king Mordecai, that Mordecai be hanged on them and then go to the banquet with the king. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Now let's watch the hand of God, starting here in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. That night, the king couldn't sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of Chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was found out that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, who had sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. And then in verse 3, it says, Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Now get this. The night that the gallows are being made to hang Mordecai up by his enemy, Haman. The king couldn't sleep. And he says, hey, bring me the chronicles and read to me what's been going on around here the last few days. So they come in and they bring him the records and they start reading. And he remembers that, 
that Mordecai is a hero. Mordecai is the one who saved his life. And he also finds out that nothing's been done to help him, right? And so about that time, it's morning, and who walks into the palace? And it's Haman. And of course, what is Haman going to ask? He's going to say, hey, let me string this guy up. But look at, look at what God does. Look at what God does. He says, he's, he comes in, and before Haman can ask him a question, he says, well, there you are, Haman. Good morning to you. And uh, in effect, he says, let me ask you a question. If I want to honor somebody in a big way, what's the best way to do that? And Haman thinks in his pride and arrogance, well, hey, he's talking about me. You know, if you're proud and arrogant, you probably think everybody's talking about you too. And uh, the king said, and he says, well, let's get a royal robe. Let's put it on the guy and let's, let's put him on a royal horse and let's have a big ticker tape parade in the city and let's parade him all around and let everybody know that the king is proud of this guy and what a great job he's doing. So when the king hears that, he says, well, hey, that sounds like a great plan. Go get Mordecai and let's honor him now. <laughs> it's like, yeah, Mordecai's finally going to get some credit here. You see, we can see the hand of God in this. So the, the parade lasted most of the day, and Haman was just a wreck after the parade. And let's read about this in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and his head was covered. <laughs> and when Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Well, what kind of support is that from your own wife, you know? <laughs> Especially, I mean, she's the one that put him up to, it, uh, up to the whole thing to begin with, right? Well, you know, while they were speaking, still speaking in verse 14, it says, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came, and they hastened to bring Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. This is the second banquet. So we get over into chapter 7, and it's pretty dramatic what happens. I mean, at some point, uh, she turns on Haman with the king there, and she's like, he's trying to murder me. He's trying to murder all my people. And the king finds out that his right-hand man is up to no good, and he's very angry, and he storms out and, uh, just to get his composure. And while he's out, Haman just falls all over Esther. I mean, he's just like, he's clawing on her and begging her, you know, for mercy. And that was the wrong thing to do because the king comes back in and he's basically on top of her. And in verse 8 of chapter 7, he says, will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? And, you know, it's, it's, it's a little comical, but th that was his last straw, you know. If, if it wasn't bad enough already for him, that was it. So, God, uh, so the king had a bag put over his head. He was let out and he was hung on the gallows that he had made for Mordecai. So there's never a really a better picture in the Bible, I don't think, of a poetic justice than this. He really got what was coming to him. And in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 8, we see that on that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. <clears throat> So the king took off the signet ring, which he had taken from Haman. He gave it to Mordecai. And then at the end of verse 2, it says, And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house 
of Haman. In effect, Esther made uh, Mordecai, her cousin, the prime minister. But now, even though Haman is dead, they're still not out of the woods. And why is that? Because it's the law of the Medes and Persians, and it had been decreed that all the Jews would be killed, okay? And the law of the Medes and Persians cannot be changed. It can't be annulled in any way. So the Jews are still facing a threat to their existence. And so Esther and Mordecai come up with a solution, and they say, well, why not allow the Jews to protect themselves and equip them to protect themselves? And the king signs off on that. So in verses, uh, what happens in the rest of the verses there, the king signs off on it, and, and Mordecai issues an order and allows the Jews to defend themselves. And when the day comes, they actually have a great victory over all of the people in the kingdom there who were their enemies. And in verse 9, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 22, the scripture says, chapter 9, verse 22, their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. Okay? How did all that happen? Was it just chance or circumstance? No. And Esther wasn't leaving anything to chance either. She wasn't relying on her beauty. She said, I want the power of God, even though she didn't mention God. They fasted and they prayed. They sought the Lord. Okay? And that's how this story ends. And sometimes in your life, this kind does not come out but by prayer and fasting. You're going to face situations in your life. I faced them in my life. And, 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 and I'm telling you that unless we are willing to fast and pray, unless we're willing to subject ourselves as a holy sacrifice before God, a living sacrifice, and worship in that way and pray and disconnect from the world through fasting and connect to God through prayer, you're not going to see an answer to your prayer because there's a difference between the love of God and the favor of God, okay? And the favor of God fully manifested, you're not going to see it. Jesus said, this kind does not come out by prayer and fasting. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Prayer counselors come to the front. And let me just say, I've talked about Jesus some here. You know, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that's why you're here today. That's why you're here today. A relationship with God is about, a, is about having a relationship with Jesus. It's not about religion. It's not about trying to be good or do good. And God's got a plan, and Jesus is coming back again. And you don't want to miss out on this. He's got a plan for you. He loves you, okay? And so you can come up here with a prayer counselor today or with me, and you can talk to us, and we can, we can lead you through. We can, we can say the prayer with you where you can accept Christ in your life. Some of you need to do that in this crowd. Some of you have never been born again. Some of you in here have been born again, but you're backslidden. You've been connected to the world. You've not been reaching out to God. You're not fully surrendered your will to God. You've surrendered your life, but you've kept these sins, these hidden sins, and you've not told anybody about it, and you need to come up today, and you need to repent. And that's what the prayer counselors are for. So as we sing today, you're going to have an opportunity to do that during this song, and it's my prayer that you'll come. It's my prayer that you'll come today and give your life to Christ because God's plan is going to come. And it's going to come, and hopefully it's going to be with you. Hopefully you're going to let God use you. He wants to. He loves you. So won't you come today as, as the worship team sings? Prayer counselors can come to the front.